Oh, man, thank you. It's good to be back with you guys uh, and ladies and children. Um, we're going to be in Revelation this morning, Revelation chapter 1, and we'll read through parts of chapter 2. A few quick, uh, I guess, uh, announcements, so to speak. This is not the sermon series that we'll be in this fall, but I hope to do in the month of August um, every year is to take a break and to uh, work through maybe some upcoming changes in the life of the church. Most of you know that there is a session retreat that myself and the elders that we do uh, once a year. We had a session retreat this February, and after um, I started, took, became the pastor at Redeemer, I spent the first three months interviewing about 100 of you, and we had a session and diaconate retreat last summer. So we've actually retreated twice, and we've identified, I think, uh, where the Lord is maybe leading Redeemer uh, in the next year or so, something that we can work on, something that's tangible, something that we think will make a significant difference in the life of this church. And so before we talk about that and unpack that in the coming weeks, I did want to set the table and talk through the church and how does Jesus feel about the church and what's the nature of the church in the sense of it being this perfectly imperfect group of people called from darkness into light and how we're able to and called to in the gospel to kind of hold that intention. And then uh, some imperatives that Jesus does give the church, even though we're imperfect, it's not like we can raise our flag and say, hey, we're imperfect, so that's it. No, Jesus actually calls the church when we find our sin to actually corporately confess and to repent and to do something new. And so that'll make a whole lot of sense later. I just wanted to kind of talk to you about what we'll be looking at over the next coming weeks. It'll be three or four weeks and we'll be talking, unpacking more of this theme of what's going to be new in the life of Redeemer. So if you have a Bible and I invite you to turn to Revelation chapter one, we'll be in verse nine and I'll read through Revelation chapter two, uh, verse seven. And I, John, your brother and partner in tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and because of the testimony of Jesus. And I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest, and the hairs of his head were white, white like wool, white like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters, in his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, for I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, 
the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works and your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember therefore from where you have fallen and repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, you remind us that blessed is the man or woman who reads aloud the words of prophecy from this book. That this book is for our good, that we need not be intimidated by the figures or the images, that it is holy scripture. I do pray now that you would bless your servant with wisdom and humility and boldness and faithfulness to your word, that your people would be encouraged and challenged and shaped, but more importantly, Lord, that we would rest more deeply in the work of Jesus, that we would conform our lives to the life that he would have us to live. I do pray for many of us, Lord, who are hurting now through all the events that are going on in our country and our world. And I pray that we would get a, vis a vision of the world as you see it. That with John, that you tore the veil, that you allowed him to see the world as you see it. And it appears that darkness will win. It appears that hate will win. It appears that your servants will suffer and be paraded around as fools. But you show us that things are not what they appear that you are on the throne and you are working in and through the church and you will persevere us until the end. And so I pray that we would have hope beyond measure. Bless our time now for Christ's sake. Amen. So um, what I want to do is sort of kind of what Candace just did. I don't know if you Candace just kind of did two closings to a song. And so technically, by music standards, she violated, you know, music, right? You don't close a song twice. Well, yes, you can, right? Well, everybody says that a sermon has to have an introduction, and today I'm not. I'm just going to go right into the text, and then we'll unpack it at the end. Is that cool? So, hey, I just want to talk about the church this morning. I just want to revisit this whole idea of the church, and I want to look at it from Jesus' perspective. And I want us to sort of uh, get this gaze, this heavenly gaze for what the church is, how important it is, and how do we hold that tension of a church in all of its imperfections, still loved and beloved by the Lord, and, and, and the Lord still calls us to love it and to be a part of it. But I also don't want to give a church a free pass that when the angel of the Lord announces sin or when Jesus exposes sin in the church, the church is not above the word of Christ, even as the church, we are submitting to it. And so what I want to do is sort of flush out some of this and show how I think that this is the foundation to some of the things that we're going to try to do next year 
as it relates to caring for you all more faithfully. The first thing I want us to, to, to remember is that the church is important. And I want to I want to tease this out from our passage. But before we dig into Revelation, I, I have to tell you that one of the most significant uh, lectures that I've heard on this book was through D.A. Carson. D.A. Carson came to RTS several years ago, and I remember going over there and he worked through. I cannot remember how much of Revelation. All I remember is it was formative. And right now you can go on the Gospel Coalition and I think there are about 26 lectures that he does and he works through the entire book. It changed me and it changed the way that I read the book. And so some of what I'm going to talk about in this first section that I'm telling you up front that this is straight up D.A. Carson, right? So, uh, the, but the first thing you have to re remember is that this is apocalyptic literature. And that's really important because the Bible comes to us in numerous genres, right? And so Jesus often spoke in parables, right? You can, some of the Old, Test, Old Testament is Old Testament history and narrative, that some of the Old Testament comes to us by way of Proverbs. Some of the Old Testament comes to, to us by the way of the law. This is not a suggestion. This is the law. And one of the greatest mistakes that we can make as readers of Scripture is to attempt to interpret one genre of the Bible through the lens of another genre. In other words, if you read Proverbs as if it's the law, like the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, then, then we're in trouble. But if you treat the law of God like you treat Proverbs, then you're in trouble. In other words, every genre of literature comes to us with its own set of tools that help us interpret that genre. And apocalyptic is kind of its own unique thing. The primary way of communication is not words, it's images. It's images that we don't fully understand. It's images that if you as an artist tried to sit down and draw, you probably couldn't do it. But that's the point. And there, there are many errors out there, right, when it comes to how to read and interpret this book. I'll give you two as, as an example. If you've ever had a Jehovah's Witness knock on your door, that one of the things that they have done to me, at least when they've knocked on my door, and we're kind of going back and forth, is, is this whole idea of, hey, you know, there's only 144,000 people going to make it to heaven. And I'm just like, dude, that's like, you know, that, that doesn't write, that doesn't, when John says, I see myriads and myriads people that I can't count, and all of a sudden, you pull out two passages in Revelation because he says 144,000, and you're telling me that that's who's going to be in heaven. I'm like, no, 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 no. You are taking something literal, and th that's not meant to be interpreted that way, right? The same thing about this image of Jesus, that if you've been in a black barbershop, then you, you, you probably, you might recognize this figure, right? This black figure of Jesus who has brown skin and woolly hair and it's white and he has like fire in his eyes, right? That's coming straight from our passage where someone reading this is trying to take this stuff, this image and make it literal. Jesus is not African-American, right? He's Jewish, right? That's all over the Bible, right? <laughs> but if you sort of look at apocalyptic literally and try to interpret it, then we're in trouble. Yet, there is a way to read it that, I, that we think honors the Lord. And so what I want to do is, is just sort of use that as an entry to, to this image, this, this picture of Jesus that, that, that John sees. And the first thing you see is that he says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I, I saw 
a man, the son of man, and he was clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. And so that, that's the first thing when John turns around, he sees a robe, like he sees a robe. And, and, and you know what clothing do. Clothing announces who we are before we say a word. If I'm dressed in a really nice suit, I don't even have to open my mouth, right? That, that you already know that, wait a minute, this guy's probably not poor, right? That that's the whole thing in James. James says the church, and we're, we're making judgments based on, on appearance, that, that you saw a person and because they were dressed in shabby clothing, you automatically says, hey, you go sit back there and you dress in good clothing, you come up here. The whole reason they're doing that is because clothing announces something. Before I even open my mouth, it's telling me something. And what John is saying when he sees Jesus in a long robe with a golden sash, he is saying we're seeing royalty. We're, we're seeing royalty. I'm seeing a priest. I'm seeing perhaps the highest priest. I'm seeing perhaps the highest king. And he says, I see him and I know him. And, and before he utters a word, I already know that this is not an ordinary man that I'm encountering. That's what he says. I see a man like the son of man, like Daniel saw. He, he was clothed in a long robe. And look at verse 14. And the hairs of his head, they were white, white like wool, white like snow. And I know a little bit about that, right? I, I'm, I'm graying out really fast. And I, I have pictures, right? I, I remember doing campus work in one year, I'm just, I'm all black, and you give it a year or two, and, I'm, and now it's just getting gray, and all of a sudden, you're not kind of the hip young dude coming on campus. You're an old man, right? I go buy shoes with my son, and there's like, hey, tell your granddad to get them, right? <laughs> this is the, I'm honest, right? This is the truth, right? Well, we do that in our culture, right? There's a stigma with being old, but in, in the first century world, that they would have known exactly what John is communicating. That gray hair, white hair, it communicated wisdom. It communicated that you've been around the block a few times. It communicates that whatever you have to say, old man, I'm going to sit around you and glean and get wisdom. In other words, what, what, who John is saying is the ancient of days. He's seeing the one who is infinitely wise. He's seeing the one who was and is and is to come. Like John is, is picturing that and imaging that for us just by showing that, hey, I see this white haired man with a long robe on. And here's the thing. When you think about old age and you think about white hair, you automatically assume he can't see, you automatically assume he needs a cane, and you automatically assumes that he has to scream to get his point across, right? And that is not the image of Jesus that John sees. As a matter of fact, once he gets out of his hair, notice what he says, his eyes were like a flame of fire. He is talking about this penetrating ability to see in the hearts of men and women, this penetrating ability to see everything as it's happening on the earth and even the things before they happen. This man with this type of eyesight, he sees and knows the world intimately. That's the image of Jesus that John is seeing, right? Nothing's wrong with his eyesight. And his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a fire. It's this whole idea that this, this, this person has walked through some stuff. 
That they have walked through fire and they have walked through hell and they have come through it all and they are still strong and still standing. And that's why Jesus says, I am the one. I was dead and now I'm alive and now I'm, I'm, I'm risen. It's this whole idea that I'm tested, I'm tried, I'm true. I have suffered the wrath of my, God, of my father. He has poured it out on me and I have been risen. And then you get more. That his voice was like the roar of many waters, not a weak sounding voice, but the voice was like the roar of waters. Like we, we just left Niagara Falls and we rode the mermaid in the midst. And if you've been to the, to, to the Niagara Falls, then you know that you know you are at the Niagara Falls even before you see him. Before you get there, you can hear the sound of the water. When you get into it, it is terribly and terrifyingly awful. Like it is just this immense sound that you hear even before you see it. I'm out there trying to take a picture of it and my phone is just shaking and this, I, I did not realize that this much water is just dumping off the water. And so I'm up here like, man, my phone is about to get drenched. But the point is this, John says, when this Jesus speaks, you know it's his voice. It is undeniably penetrating all sound. That's why John says, I heard it and I turned around like, like I could not escape the sound of this one. And he goes on to say that he, in his right hand, he holds the seven stars. And you go down to look at verse 20. And the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And so I'm of the opinion that these probably are real angels. I think when you look at the book of Daniel, there are angels employed by God to carry the message. There are angels employed by God to do war for us. The children, the Lord Jesus says, has angels given to them who watch them, that they are God's ministering spirits sent from heaven. And what Revelation does is, is, is it pulls back the veil and it says, I know you don't see them, but that just because you don't see them does not mean that it is not true. And here's what John is saying. The Lord pulled everything back and he showed me that even the angels that God employs from heaven, they will make sure that the message will get to the church. And Jesus says, I hold them in my hand. They go where I say they go. They go and they do what I say they do. This is not your image of a safe little cuddly Jesus. This is the enthroned one. This is the almighty one. And John says, I see him. And when I saw him, look at what he says. When I saw him in verse 17, I fell at his feet as though dead. This is what Jesus does when you see him. You bow. You worship. You adore. And that's what John says happened to me. The moment I saw him, I fell down as a dead man. The same response that Isaiah had when he saw the glory of the Lord, he fell down. And that is, the, that is the, what happens when humanity gets the gaze upon the beauty and holiness of God. We can't stand in his presence. And then look at what Jesus says. Fear not, I am the first and I am the last. I'm the living one. I died and I and behold, I live forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Therefore, you write. In other words, John sees Jesus. And if that were not enough. 
to bring us joy and reverence and honor. Look at where John sees Jesus. Look at verse 12. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And so what are the seven lampstands? John tells us, look at chapter 1, verse 20. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. And so the seven churches that you see in Revelation 1, verse 11, Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Tessardus and the Philadelphia and Laodicea, John is actually saying that Jesus cares about those local expressions of the body of Christ. And he has a message for him, but he sees him in the form of a lampstand. And guess where he sees Jesus? In the middle of the lampstands. In other words, now think about this, that of all the images of Jesus in the book of Revelation, think about all the images that you know that we get this bird's eye view. You get to see Satan cast into the lake of fire. You get a, a vision of the new heavens and the new earth. You get to see the rider on the white horse. You get to see the plagues that God pours out on the earth. You get to see the harlot and her being defeated. You get to see the dragons. You get to see all of this stuff and you want to know what the first image is that John sees. It's this one right here. Jesus next to the church. Jesus next to the church. I looked back and I saw seven lampstands and then I saw Jesus next to them. And then when you get over to Revelation chapter 2, look at the end of verse 1. He who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Do you catch the image, catch the picture? This is how important churches are to Jesus. That the first image he gives John is that I am going to walk in their midst. I will see them and I will know them and I will build my church and I will protect them. It's this image that John is saying that, that in a day and age where it's easy to think the church is unimportant, it's easy to have commit to a local church, it's easy to date the church and then step back. It's easy to do all of these things. And here's what Jesus is saying. Pull your phone out, John. Take a selfie. I'm snapping a picture of myself next to my church. That is how important the local church is to Jesus. And so I think it's a barometer for us all, right? Do we love the local church in this way? Is it important to us in this way? And I don't mean just Redeemer. When Jesus says the seven churches, seven in Revelation, it means the fullness. He means every local church that bears his name he says, I am there from the largest one with all of the resources to the to the one that doesn't even have a website. I'm there. I see. I know it. I love it. 
This is where I give grace. This is where I speak. This is where I meet with my people week in and week out. This is where my word is read. This is where the good news is heralded. This is where brothers and sisters reconciled to me through the cross are now reconciled to one another through the gospel. And they live this thing out, not as strangers, but as friends and as brothers and sisters in the Lord, as family. God says, I'm putting it all, baby, right here in the local church. I will work and out throughout the world, God is saying, but where I will preeminently display my glory, where I will preeminently show up and show out, it's going to be when my people gather. And it's not just a building. He's talking about real people. The church is this important that the very first image that Jesus gives John is of himself next to and near the church. The second thing we see is that the church is imperfect to Jesus. And this does not change his affection for it. You might be thinking, what's the relationship between this image of Jesus that you see with the with a, the long robe and the white hair and the penetrating eyes and the bronze feet and, and the voice that roared like many waters. Like, why, why is that important? Why is that important? Here's why. The bronze feet that you see in chapter 1, verse 15, are now the feet that Jesus are using to walk in chapter 2, verse 1, when he walks among the lampstands. Those eyes that flame like fire in chapter 1, verse 14, are now the very eyes that penetrate the church at Ephesus, so much so that Jesus says, I know your works. I know your works. I know your patient endurance. The two-edged sword that comes out of his mouth in chapter 1, verse 16, they're the very words that we we will see that will come to the church at Ephesus and all the churches to both crush them and to put them together, to confront their sin and to remind them that they're loved, that this two-edged sword that John says he sees in the mouth of Christ, Jesus pulls it out and says, let me show you. And so Revelation starts with John being the one to write what he's seeing. And then if you have a Bible like I do, it turns red letter right there around chapter 1, verse 17, and Jesus just starts to speak. Rest of chapter one, all of chapter two, all of chapter three, and he speaks to every single church in that list in chapter one. In other words, this is Jesus talking now. This is Jesus telling us what he sees. This is Jesus telling us what he knows. This is Jesus using his own voice, talking to the church. And here's what you learn, that there's a, there's a, there's a, a, a practice here that Jesus is using where he, if at all possible, He's starting with commendation. In other words, when he surveys the church and walks near the churches, if at all possible, he is starting with what he sees as good in the life of that church. And so you see it uh, in every letter except for one, and that's Laodicea. He says nothing good about that church, but every other church out of the seven, there's something good that Jesus finds. And there's a pattern there. Now, here's what he sees about Ephesus. He says in verse 2 of chapter 2, I know your works <clears throat> and your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and they are not, and you have found them to be false. Look at verse 3 of chapter 2. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and have not grown weary. 
Look at chapter 2, verse 6. This you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. In other words, what Jesus does when he talks about and to the church of Ephesus, he is telling them that, man, you guys are on point. When it comes to checking false apostles, can't nobody get in here and preach nothing false. You're going to sit him down, right? That's that, that, and he commends them for that, that they are keeping a close watch on their doctrine. That's what he's saying. He's, he encourages that. <clears throat> but then he's no idealist of the five to seven churches he actually confronts what's not good. And so he moves from, I have this thing, I see that you're doing good and well, I see it, I know it, but that's not it. It also goes in the other direction, right? Look at what he says in chapter two, uh, verse four, but I have this against you that you've abandoned the love you had at first. And it's not just there. Look at chapter two, verse 14. This is a whole nother church. <clears throat> but I have a few things against you. That's when he's talking to the church at Pergamum. It, go, it, it doesn't stop there. Go to chapter two, verse 20 in Thyatira. He says, I know your works, your love, your faith and servants and patient endurance and that the latter works to see the first. Look at verse 20, but I have this against you. In other words, the practice, and that's why I want us to look at the practice of Jesus as he is assessing the church is to say what's good and then what's not good. That's the way he's dealing with the church. You're important and you're imperfect, but even in your imperfections, it is not a basement, right? That there is still some good going on right here, and I see it, but even in my love for you, I will not ignore the sin that's happening corporately in the church. That's the way Jesus is grooming and speaking to the church. He sees both what's good and both what's bad, and in Ephesus, he says, I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. They're not backsliding ethically or morally. They're doing the right things, fighting the right causes. But Jesus says it's not motivated by love. And here's the thing. This was a model church. This was the Ephesian church that Paul wrote the epistle of the Ephesians to. This is the Ephesian church that Paul trained their own elders this is the Ephesian church where Paul sent Timothy to go back and to pastor. This is the Ephesian church where we believe John, who wrote the book of Revelation, the disciple whom Jesus loved, this is where we believe he lived and was a part of this church. And so what you start to see is that just because the church had it together back then, Jesus says, no church is safe. No church can say we have it all together. Not one church, even the highest churches can fall. <clears throat> and I think this is important for us to consider. Now, how, how do we apply this? What I want to do here is do exactly what Jesus is doing. If Jesus were to walk about our church, which he is, this is not an if. This is not a maybe. That if we really believe that the Lord Jesus is the king and head of the church, if we really believe that he is here and walking in our midst in some way that we might not understand that Jesus is here. He does see. And here's the thing. I am convinced that he would see a whole lot of good. Right? He would see our school. 
and discipling kids, both from this church and our neighborhood in the, in the ways of the Lord. He would see the way Deshaun and his team have handled break-ins after break-ins where we've had property stolen. And as opposed to turn those young men over instantly to the police, he's working with them and they're helping us move in. And he's bringing the policemen in to show them that, young man, this is not the path that you want. That Jesus sees the way that we care for orphans. That when some of you come here next Saturday and you spend hours here so that those in the foster system can have respite, that when some of you get involved in safe families, pure and undefiled religion is this, that you visit orphans and you care for those in need and widows, that, 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 that Jesus sees when deacons show up at people's houses to move a single woman into a new apartment, when they show up and, and cut the grass, when, when they show up and we're managing a mercy ministry budget to give resources away, Jesus sees when we don't have a pastor, don't have a senior pastor, and the elders step up and they coordinate pulpit supply, they put together liturgy, they run committee meetings. He sees that when the church can even grow without a man being in the pulpit, Jesus sees, he sees when you spend your time here on Wednesday nights when the building is full of kids. He sees. And a mark of a healthy church is to stop and to celebrate and to salute and to applaud. I applaud you for your service. I applaud you for the way you give. Jesus salutes the church. And here's the thing. If your posture is unlike Jesus, then you have to repent. In other words, I think there, it's so easy to be hurt by the church, and then there is nothing right the church is doing. It's so easy to be hurt that we, we, we're blinded in our pain where everything that comes out of our mouth is bad about the church. And Jesus says that posture is not right. He says, when I look at my church, I love it, and I can see all of the good in it. And even though it's imperfect, I love it. I will identify myself with it. But it goes the other way, right? That what Jesus does in this passage isn't just com command. He also calls out what's not right. And that's, what, that's hard, too, because I, I, I've been in churches where you can't touch mine anointed. Do the prophets no harm, right? You, you've heard that, right? You've heard people use that. They, they use Psalm 105 or 1 Chronicles 16. Do not touch my anointed ones and do my prophets no harm. And so the moment you try to check something that's not right in a church or the moment a pastor is, is out in left field with theology or with his action or with his practice, the moment you say something to him, he pulls this up on you. You can't touch the Lord's anointed. And here's the thing, that is unbiblical. Because here is what you see in the Bible. Jesus himself checks his anointed. Jesus himself confronts sin where sin is. In other words, no one gets a free pass for sin in our lives. And it does not matter your title. It does not matter your position. It does not matter your influence. This is not our church. It's his church. 
And he gets to determine what's right and what's wrong. And when there is neglect and Jesus confronts, the wrong thing to do is to build up a wall and to deny it. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He calls out. And so here's the thing. When I first started here last February, the first thing I did outside of trying to figure out where to start was to meet with you. And I interviewed at least 110 of you, I think. At least 100. I know we made 100, right? Black people, white people, single people, divorced people, widows, people who live in Jackson, in this neighborhood, people who do not, who commute in, people who've been here for one year, people who've been here for 10 years. I sat down and got it in with 100 of you. And you know what? I've heard the good. And I've also heard the bad. I know some of you, you desperately want this church to look more like our mission statement, to be a community church for the city. And when you walk in our building on Sundays, you don't see a huge population of people from our community. I hear that. And we got to work at that. And I'm here to say it's going to take more than just inviting people on our space, on our terms, where it's safe. It's actually going to take more prayer, more falling on our knees, and more wanting people here not to just make the demographics look good, but because we want to see all people reconciled to their maker through the hope of the gospel. It's going to take more door-to-doors like we were doing this summer, following up with people after VBS and walking through our neighborhood and someone has torn up a pornographic magazine and just thrown every single, every single page down the entire street, right? More of that, more of rolling our hands, our, our sleeves up and going door to door, more sharing the good news, more meeting people on their terms, more learning the nuances between race and culture and class and politics and more being unafraid to dive into some of that stuff for the hope of the gospel. It's going to take more work, more prayer, more trust, more boldness. I've listened to some of you, and it's easy to get lost in the cracks at Redeemer. As Redeemer has grown, it's been harder for us to keep up with everybody. That I've talked to you that, that at times I, I, we don't treat you like sheep, and sheep are prone to stray. And we'll talk about this in a few weeks. But seeing people for what they really are in Christ, loved, but still sheepish. And sheepish like to run. They like to go away. And we have to have a posture to pursue and go after, right? And I've heard from some of you that you work and you serve, and yet at times you felt uncared for and unknown. And I want to be the first to say that I'm sorry. That if this is a legitimate weakness of the church, then woe to us if we say it's not. So you can't have it both ways. We can't over here applaud what is right and name that. We also have to be confident enough in the gospel to also own what is wrong and to name that. And somehow in all of this, you got to hold it together. 
You got to stay fighting and pursuing the Lord Jesus together, even through the hurt and even through the disappointments and even through the letdowns, because our righteousness is in Jesus. And so anything that we do that is worthy of praise, it's because he's done it. And our righteousness is in Jesus. So even when we fall short, we fall back to the gospel. And so it's a win-win, saints. Got to hold this intention, this, this good and this healthy and right and, and, and sin and negligence, that these are not ways, these are not causes to make us pull back. But, but in Jesus, we can stay and persevere and work through it. I love what Spurgeon says, if I had ever joined, he says, if I had never joined a church until I had found one that was perfect, I should have never joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I had found one, then I myself would have spoiled it for it would not have been a perfect church because I became a member of it. Still imperfect as it is, the church is the dearest place on earth to us. All who have given themselves to the Lord should as speedily as possible give themselves to the Lord's people. How else is there to be a church on earth? If it is right for anyone to refrain from membership in the church, then it is right for everyone. And if everyone refrain from joining a church, then the testimony for God will be lost to the world. As I've already said, the church is faulty, but that is no excuse for you not joining it. If you are, are the Lord's, nor need your faults keep you back. For the church is not an institution for perfect people, but a sanctuary for sinners saved by grace, who, though they are saved, are still sinners and need all the help they can derive from the sympathy and guidance of their fellow believers. The church is the nursery for God's weak children, where they are nourished to grow strong. It is the fold for Christ's sheep, the home of Christ's family. You see how Spurgeon is holding that tension together? I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. The church is not perfect. But this is the most blessed place on the planet. The last thing we see is that Jesus issues imperatives to imperfect churches. So the church is important. The church is imperfect. And then Jesus issues imperatives to those churches when I tend to say, hey, I'm not, perf I'm, I'm not perfect, I, when I use that, whether it's with my wife or with anyone, what's really beneath that is I don't want to change, right? That's what's kind of beneath it. Well, nobody's perfect. Well, no, that's an excuse to not change. And here's the thing. When Jesus highlights the imperfections of the churches at Ephesus and all the rest of them, he is not doing that to merely inform. He is actually doing that, that they might be transformed, that there might be a new way of living. And that's what you see. And it's all in verse five. And these are all in the imperative. In other words, you see in verse five, after he says, I have this against you, that you have abandoned your, the love you had at first. Look at verse five. Remember, that is not a suggestion. The force of that is a commandment. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. The second thing is repent. That's not a suggestion. That's a commandment. Repent and do the works you and, and then and do the works you did at first. Again, that's not that's not a suggestion that do the works you did at first is a commandment. In other words, what Jesus is telling them 
that after I expose what is wrong, repent. Own up to it. Remember the gospel and put new practices on that are consistent with repentance. He said, when you hear these things, he says, own it and name it and own it and take it to the cross and you leave it there and you rejoice in forgiveness. You rejoice in pardon and you get up and you endeavor to do something new and something different and something better and something godly. That's what he's saying. And here's the thing. He says, if you don't, I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. This is not you will lose your salvation. Rather, the light of your church will grow dim. I think one of the reasons so many churches are closing. And I don't know what's right. Some say it's 3000 a week. I'm not sure. I don't know the numbers. Right. But I will say that this passage right here. One reason might be the failure to corporately repent, the failure to listen to the Lord, the failure to own what is wrong and unhealthy, to name it and to repent and to endeavor to do something new. And here's what Jesus is saying. If you do not repent, your light will grow dim. But the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, why, why all of this? Why talk about the importance of the church? Why talk about the imperfection of the church? Why name what is good and name some areas where we're weak? Because we're going to spend the next three weeks flushing out, doing something new, doing something different. That one of my longings has been to not get so caught up in what Redeemer is doing, but to actually care for the people doing the work. That if you remember when I stood before you on a Wednesday evening, when I taught people asked, what's the next thing? The next thing is to first care for you. That if you are in this fold, I want you to be cared for and known. I want you to feel like when things are hard, that, that you have a, a person to turn to. And I don't speak just for me. I speak for our session that we want to love and care for you better. And here's the thing. Jesus says the world will know your love for me, not by what you do in the world. He says, first and foremost, by how you love for one another. And so this whole idea that we got to be on mission, on mission, go do more, go do more. And Jesus is saying, no, you love more. You love deeper, you love better, and you're on mission together. And so the next coming weeks, we're going to talk about something new, something different that I pray that the Spirit will honor, and it will be a blessing for us all. All I wanted to do was the model, the practice of evaluating the church is right here. The importance of the church is right here. Commending the church for what is good is right here. Owning what is not healthy in a church, it's right here. And doing something new for the glory of, God, of the gospel, it's right here. And so this isn't just, hey, we're trying something new. This is a way of the cross.
Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that where my voice is weak, that yours will be strong. I pray that as we uh, press into just how important your church is and how to love it, even in its imperfections. I pray that as we trust that you are pleased with the work that we are doing, that there is no perfect church. And so I pray that there would be real gospel freedom to own up to weaknesses, to own up to things that are unhealthy in the life of the church. I pray that we will feel free enough in the gospel to name those things, to own those things, to repent of those things, and to do a new thing, walking out, celebrating and rejoicing in the hope of the gospel even more. And so would you apply your word to the hearts of your people? If there is something that is in error that I've said, I pray that it will fall upon deaf ears. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.